FM band is from 88 megahertz up to 108. We've got this frequency. We're going to call you CKUT. We've got this frequency, 98.3. That frequency is what you're picking up when you tune that radio. Very impressive. You can sit on the boat and it looks like they're picking up CKUT clear as a bell. Fascinating. Your analysis seems logical. www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. job hobby to give a man back the dignity he once had your interest is in how he behaves you'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave i am not a number i am a free man you were a number you weren't a man you want to be a few i wasn't jim crow and hell i was number 586 why do you do a warder's job it's a good job responsible job uh, officers like myself trying to scum Good morning and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. Today we will be focusing on an interview with Max Siegelbaum. Max is an independent journalist who co-founded the website Documented, which focuses on issues facing immigrants in New York City. A couple of weeks ago, Max broke a story about the Canadian Pension Plan's investments in private prisons in the U.S. We talked to him about that story, about ethical investing, and about where else the CPP is putting their money. We will also be airing an interview with Helen from Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners Calendar Project. Finally, we'll be airing audio from a demonstration that took place on Sunday, October 21st, in Montreal against the International Corrections and Prisons Association Conference. This conference was hosted by Correctional Services Canada and has been happening all week at the Marriott Hotel on De La Gauchetere in downtown Montreal. But first, some news. The extent of repression and retaliation by prison authorities against sus suspected participants in this year's widespread prison strike continues to emerge slowly. The National Lawyers Guild Prisoners Legal Advocacy Network has documented the following. 
One, widespread staff perpetrated physical abuse, destruction of prisoners' personal property, theft, destruction of prisoners' legal property, and obstruction of prisoners' access to, for example, grievance forms. Scatter, uh, number two, scattershot retaliation against jailhouse lawyers, including preventing them from jailhouse lawyering by placing them into solitary confinement under false pretenses. Three, preemptive lockdown and segregation of thousands of prisoners in the absence of many cases of any apparent indication that the prisoners were involved in the nationwide strike. And four, remarkable consistency in the correctional system's talking points as cited in the media, whereby prison officials in areas where intense oppression was reported have staunchly refused to acknowledge prison strike activities in their facilities. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, testimony has confirmed that 40 people held in a quote-unquote close supervision unit have been confined to their cells 23 hours a day, on one occasion for a continuous 36-hour period for several weeks. This action comes after 10 members of prison staff refused to work in the unit. Keith Malik, Washington, has issued a press release denouncing Islamophobic behavior from prison staff in Texas. Earlier this month, on October 3rd, Malik was forced to perform several strip searches while being filmed. He also had all of his personal belongings removed from his cell. He says, these strip searches are humiliating and degrading. There is an underlying issue here on this unit, where Lieutenant Javier Murrell has established a pattern of attempting to harass and intimidate Muslim prisoners. Up to this point, I've been silent on, on this topic, just watching and waiting. Nevertheless, these ongoing strip searches, coupled with the fact that Muslims I've known over 10 years reached out to me for help, has pushed me over the edge. I'm requesting an organized response here. I want at least 1,000 free world friends to contact Texas Senator Eddie Lucio Jr., TDCJ Executive Director Brian Collier, and Texas Representative James White, and ask them specific questions. And this time, sisters and brothers, we must demand answers and solutions to these issues. Please, Malik writes in his statement, shared with the Incarcerated Workers Committee, I really need your help on this. He writes further, why did TDCJ State Classification Committee member Kelly Onlow approve my release from Administration SEG, yet I have been returned to Administration SEG with no excuse? What was the reason for dismissing me from the Administration SEG transition program? Upon arrival at the McConnell unit, why have I been classified as a high-profile inmate? What behavior or historical data is TDCJ using to justify the humiliating strip searches with camcorder? Does TDCJ train their staff to be tolerant and respectful of prisoners who practice Islam or follow the Judaic faith? Does the agency monitor instances of religious discrimination and harassment of the prisoners? Sisters and brothers, I have been the boy who cried wolf. I am known throughout the nation and even in some parts of Europe as being a truthful and respected authority on the conditions inside Texas prisons. There is a Muslim here on McConnell unit named Forry Gamble, TDC number 1426500. His Muslim name is Abdur Razak, and he has been on a hunger strike for a couple of weeks. I was just notified two days ago, something is wrong. I've known this brother for nearly 10 years, and he is not someone who engages in anything like a hunger strike unless something is extremely wrong. 
The McConnell unit has recently been placed on what I believe is semi-annual lockdown. So we need some concerned citizens to call up here immediately and talk to Senator to Senior Warden Philip Sinfutz in order to ascertain what the problem is. McConnell's phone number is 361-362-2300. I also suggest you contact the TDCJ Ombudsman and request statements he obtained directly from the Forey Gamble and myself in order to get a true grasp of the situation here. I always say that the best antiseptic for injustice is sunlight. TDCJ has been doing a lot of dirt in the dark for far too long. We need more media exposure. Dare to struggle, dare to win. All power to the people. Keith Malik Washington is a co-founder and chief spokesman for the End Prison Slavery in Texas movement, a proud member of the Incarcerated Workers Organized Committee and deputy chairman of the new African Black Panther Party prison chapter. Malik has been instrumental in calling for the abolition of legalized slavery in America and is very active in the fight toxic prisons campaign. You can view his work at comrademalik.com or you can write him at Keith A. Washington, TDC number 1487958, McConnell Unit 3001 S. Emily Drive, Beeville, Texas 78102. The Abolitionist Law Center has announced a call to support Kevin Rashid Johnson. Rashid is a longtime prison organizer, artist, and writer, prison ra radio contributor, and co-founder of the new African Black Panther Party prison chapter. He was just transferred again as retaliation for his commitment to speaking truth to power and his role in the August 21st prison strike. When he arrived at Sussex 2 in Virginia, he was treated so violently that he is currently having a high blood pressure episode that could lead to a stroke, but the prison refuses to give him a medical evaluation. The Abolitionist Law Center is calling on your help to rally for Rashid and demand that he receives fair treatment and the medical care that he needs. The warden at Sussex 2 is Beth Cable. The number to reach her is 804-834-2678. Please call, and if you can't get Cable on the phone, ask to speak with her assistant or with assistant warden Darden. You can also write letters of support to Kevin Rashid Johnson, number 1007485, Sussex 2 State Prison, 24427, Muscle White Drive, Waverly, Virginia, 23891. On October 1st and 2nd, some New York State Senator Republicans held hearings in Albany on Long Island about the state of parole in New York. The senator's main complaint is that the parole board is too lenient with releasing incarcerated people who have been in prison for a very long time for serious crime. They and the New York City Police Benevolence Association, Sheriff's Association, and other groups that testified felt strongly that the nature of the crime should trump all else and that certain individuals should never be released, regardless of what changes or progress a person has made in their time in prison. They argue that the parole board was not upholding its duties in recent release of several long-termers who had previously been denied parole multiple times, and that has not given enough weight to victim impact statements. They also argued that Governor Cuomo was not within his rights to restore the vote to people on parole by executive order. 
Many groups and individuals, such as the Alliance of Families for Justice, applaud the progress the parole board has recently made towards releasing long-termers. In a recent press release, the Alliance of Families for Justice announced that they believe that sentencing is the job of the courts. It is not the parole board's role to continuously reconvict incarcerated people based exclusively on the nature of their crime, when they should be considering their current threat or lack thereof to public safety, and whether they have learned and grown and are remorseful for their actions. We, of course, know that there is much more work to be done with parole and more progress to be made. But we affirm our belief that the parole board is moving in the right direction, not the wrong one. The Alliance of Families for Justice, among dozens of other grassroots organizations working to end mass incarceration in New York State, also believe in the right to full civic participation for all citizens, regardless of criminal history or current incarceration or supervisory status. The group says it continues to uphold and support Kumo's executive order and will continue to push for this to be passed as law so that it is not easily reversed. AFJ says that it will also continue to fight for the rights to vote to be restored to people currently incarcerated. Up next, we'll hear an interview with Max Siegelbaum, a journalist with the site called Documented. Max talked to us about the Canadian pension plan's investments in private prison corporations in the U.S. and what these investments mean in the context of increased migrant detention in the U.S. So my name is Max Siegelbaum. I'm a reporter and editor based in New York City, and I run a website called Documented, which covers immigrants and immigration issues in New York. So you recently authored a piece that ran in both The Guardian and on your site Documented, and it was about the Canadian Pension Plan's decision in the last year to invest more of its money in Geo Group, which is a firm that runs private prisons in the U.S. Can you talk us through some of the findings in that piece? The story follows the investments of the Canada Pension Plan into Geo Group, CoreCivic, and a few other companies like Philip Morris, a tobacco giant, Raytheon, and General Dynamics, which both do weapons contracting and construction. And um, in total, the pension plan invested about $5.9 million into the private prison companies and much more into the other companies. Um, and this happened at a time in the United States when Trump was overall um, ordered the federal government to start arresting and detaining more immigrants, um, which is significant to these companies because a lot of their business is done through federal contracts with the U.S. government to house immigrants in jails and um, detention centers all over the country. So what led to you writing this piece? How was it brought to your attention that the Canadian Pension Plan was investing more in GeoGroup than it had previously? So a few weeks back, I wrote a story about, on a much smaller scale, local here to New York, about another pension plan that had invested in uh, GeoGroup and CoreCivic, which was from New Jersey. Now it's also for state employees, um, so it's a little different than Canada's pension plan. But 
from that story, it, it actually resulted in the state selling all of its investments in these two companies. And um, I went on to ask a source to see if they could provide a list of all companies and funds that were invested in these two companies and Canada's pension plan investment board popped up on that list that they provided me. So I started digging a little more and I saw that there was just a huge discrepancy between um, August of 2017 and August of 2018 in terms of how much stock um, Canada's pension plan owned. And that's kind of, you know, from there we wrote up the story and published it in both outlets. So let's talk a little bit more about this New Jersey piece. So this that piece that you wrote came out in August, and you wrote about a few different cities and states in that piece that were divesting from private prisons. And I was wondering if you could give us that larger picture, like are there lots of states and cities funds in the U.S. that are divesting from private prisons, and why do you think that that's happening now? Yeah, so it's an interesting movement. Um, there's a group, uh, kind of coalition of, advocates and activists in the states that are working on kind of divestment. I think it's a pretty powerful and direct kind of strategy to get at this issue for these advocates. Um, And they're going after cities, states, and kind of nonprofits like universities, all with the goal of getting them to take their money out of these companies. Um, And it's, it's, functioning similar to BDS, um, the Israeli the movement to divest from Israeli companies. Um, and yeah, that hasn't really reached the mainstream yet. There's a handful of examples. Um, New York State was a prominent one, as was the city of Philadelphia, I believe. Um, so not an extremely wide movement. When you look at finance and kind of socially responsible investing, the most successful has been tobacco and um, firearms in terms of getting kind of the mainstream finance people to look, to think twice about putting their money in. But I, I feel, I can feel that this, especially from the response from the New Jersey story, I feel that it's kind of a growing movement and probably will only get larger. Can you talk more about what the response to the New Jersey story was? Like, was it enough that that piece came out or was there were there some kind of like public outrage afterwards that made it so that New Jersey's pension fund is no longer investing in GeoGroup and CoreCivic? Yeah, so the way it happened is we published the piece and then a local newspaper um, called The Record, which is based in uh, just over the river in um, kind of northern New Jersey, they called the state treasury office. And that's when they said they were unaware of the the investments and had located, you know, 1.2 or 3, I believe, million dollars worth of investments and that they were going to sell immediately. So there wasn't really a public outcry. I think with this Canada piece, it's definitely gotten more eyeballs on it. Um, There was Charlie um, Angus has brought it up in the parliament a couple of times now. And just in reading the responses on Twitter and kind of 
speaking to him, it seems like there has been a, more of a response. Where it will go, I'm not exactly sure, but I'll be interested to find out. So the site that you co-founded, which is called Documented, um, is dedicated to covering New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. And I also noticed that it's reader funded. And I was wondering if you could talk more about the role of independent journalism in covering immigration and prison related issues these days. So, yeah, it's actually um, really a lot of the best reporting about this issue has been done by nonprofit and kind of startup media like Reveal is on the West Coast, the Texas Tribune. Um, just to name two, ProPublica, all of these have been founded in the past, I would say, decade or so, and um, are mostly foundation and reader-supported nonprofit companies. And, yeah, they've really kind of stepped ahead on these issues, particularly in prisons and immigration, I think, and kind of more socially-facing issues. And are doing some of the best reporting out there. And I think within this group, there's a, definitely the collaborative spirit and all the, we've done some collaboration so far, but I think there's the kind of rivalry of the older media has less of a hindrance in terms of producing the best work possible as a group rather than, you know, siloing off and just competing with each other. So I was wondering if you wanted to explain to people how to find your website. Yeah, so you can reach us at documentedny.com. Um, we have a newsletter. It's called Early Arrival. And you can sign up on documentedny.com. We send it out three days a week to synthesize national, local um, and Washington, D.C. immigration news. And did you have anything else about this specific story that you wanted to add or that we might have missed? Yeah, I just, I think it's interesting. I mean, the private prisons industry is kind of tied up in a lot of things, and it's um, it's interesting to, it's growing internationally, and it's uh, good to keep an eye on it. And I think it's important for people to know how their money is spent and kind of the lesser discussed article, the lesser discussed aspect of this article is the fact that they have a lot of money invested in tobacco and weapons. And it, it just, it's kind of can't be understated how people in finance in the U.S. are really just opposed to investing in those two industries. And I, I just felt it was uh, significant for that to be the case. Do you know how it came about that the U.S. is less invested in the tobacco industry and in the military defense industry? Um, I think that school, well, for weapons, I think school shootings and kind of mass shootings in general have really repulsed people from those that segment of, of uh, business in the country. I, I just think people don't really want to be a part of it. Um, and in terms of tobacco, I think the lawsuits, Philip Morris in the 90s, and just the general push from the government and kind of people like Mike Bloomberg in New York and 
people have just made it their pet cause as a public health issue to get people to stop smoking. I think both of those campaigns and kind of series of lawsuits and big news stories have just started to push people away from it. What kind of role do you think ethical investing can play in social change? Like, have you have you seen it have a big impact? Have you read of it having a big impact historically? I think it's hard to, uh, yeah, I don't know that there's been a lot of studies about whether or not ethical investing can have like an actual, um, like what sort of tangible effect it can have on a company's bottom line. You know, it's possible that the weapons manufacturers uh, will continue on operating and, and just move elsewhere to sell their wares, or tobacco will continue. But I, I think it is kind of a powerful sentiment and, um, you know, just in terms of imagery of getting the state to, to take their money. It's kind of a statement against those industries and that it's a very kind of attainable goal. You know, they'll just sell it or they'll just stop doing it. Um, whereas it's not so much kind of an entire systemic reef, um, restructuring. And yeah, I guess what time will tell. I, I definitely think BDS has had um, a significant impact in the way we think about companies, and the way we think about being consumers. Um, I know when I start to see certain brands in the supermarket, I think of that. And I think that's powerful as well to just have certain things that we encounter in life every day be connected to a social movement and just have that always be there in the background. I think it, it can have a, a real effect on people. One of the overlaps between BDS and private prisons in our context in Montreal is that G4S, which is a company that I believe is based in Israel, um, runs the immigration detention center that is just outside the city here. So, G4S is also one of the companies that New York divested from. It's, it's um, and I think in the United States they handle the transportation of immigrants. So when they get bused to the border to be deported or when they're bused in between facilities, I think that's G4S is a big part in that. Thanks so much for coming on the Prison Radio Show. We will post the uh, link to Documented on our blog so that people can go find it. And we'll keep paying attention to articles you guys put out. It was really cool to see this one about the pension plan in Canada, and hopefully something will come of it. Of course. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. That was Max Siegelbaum from the website Documented. To check out more writings by Max, including his recent piece about the CPP and the GEO Group, visit documentdny.com. Let me repeat that. Document, with an E at the end of document, dny.com. Whose data? Our data. When you're not paying for a product, you are the product especially in web and email services, where multinationals compete to manage your communication so they can make a profit off of the private communication you are producing. Kumbit is a worker cooperative trying to help small organizations or individuals get their email, website creation, and website hosting services off corporate services such as Google. For more information, contact us at kumbit.org or email at info at 
That's K O U M B I T. We are not on Facebook. It is currently 11:29:40 a.m. You are listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and online at ckut.ca. Up next, we have a few different audio clips from an anti-prison demonstration that happened on Sunday, October 21st. The demonstration was against all prisons and happened outside the International Corrections and Prisons Association's opening day of a conference they have been holding this entire week at the Marriott Hotel, on De La Gauchetière in downtown Montreal. The Correction Service Canada was hosting the conference. This first clip is an introduction to the demonstration and a letter that was released last October 2017 about deaths in a federal prison. Hello tout le monde! On est ici aujourd'hui pour protester contre l'Association internationale des établissements correctionnels et pénitentiaires qui tiennent leur colloque annuel cette semaine à Montréal. Ceci est une association internationale, mais qui a son origine ici à, à, au Canada, qui euh, est constituée d'administrateurs et d'administratistes de prison, d'académies qui font leur... Euh, qui, qui reçoivent leur salaire pour étudier et pour euh, perfectionner des systèmes carcérales. C'est un colloque qui ressemble du monde qui travaille dans un des systèmes internationaux les plus néfastes qui existent aujourd'hui. Les prisons, c'est une arme dans la guerre des classes, c'est une arme du patriarcat, c'est une arme du colonialisme. Toutes les tentatives ou tous les efforts de humaniser soi-disant les prisons ne font que les rendre plus néfastes au long terme. Il faut même se rappeler du fait que les prisons elles-mêmes ont été développées comme un soi-disant alternatif humanitaire à d'autres formes de punition. Donc nous sommes ici pour dire qu'on est contre toutes les prisons, même les prisons qui sont soi-disant moins pires. Nous sommes aussi ici euh, pour nos amis, pour nos camarades, pour des personnes que nous aimons, qui ne peuvent pas être ici à cause qu'ils et elles sont emprisonnés, des fois pour, pendant des années, des fois pendant des décennies, euh, qui subissent des abus de ce système international de violence et qui n'ont pas de voix pendant que ces crétins qui viennent à des collectes eux-mêmes font semblant euh, qu'ils veulent humaniser, qu'ils veulent améliorer des choses. Et peut-être ils le veulent, mais c'est pas en travaillant avec des screws ou avec des, des administrateurs, administratrices de prison qu'on peut le faire. C'est seulement avec du monde qui subit cette violence. Donc, merci d'être venu. I'll just say a few words in English. Uh, we're here to protest against the International uh, Corrections and Prisons Association, which is an international organization, but which has its origins here in Canada which brings together prison wardens and administrators as well as academics and scholars who study how to perfect prisons, often under the guise of making them more humane, they say, but we know that when these measures are introduced under the cloak of making a prison more humane, essentially it tends to have the effect of 
making prisons more pernicious, of extending their power, of reinforcing their reach. Prisons themselves develop partly under the excuse that they were more humane than other forms of punishment. So we reject all prisons and all imprisonment. Prisons are an arm of class war. They're an arm of colonialism. They're an arm of the patriarchy. And they serve domination. They don't serve liberation, regardless of what those in charge of them may like to tell themselves. So thanks for coming. I have a statement to read. This letter, this is a letter that came out last year in October. We share it today to draw attention to deaths in prison and CSC, that's Correction Service Canada Custody. During October 2017, there were three deaths at the Federal Training Centre, a federal prison in Laval, Quebec. At least two of these deaths would have been preventable with access to proper medical treatment. This article, which is collectively written by people both inside and outside of prison, serves two purposes. The first is to remember these individuals. The second is to contextualize their deaths within the broader issue of inadequate access to care within prisons. Andre, an older man who had been diagnosed with cancer and was living with an ostomy bag due to his condition. Andre was just weeks from release from the prison, but died inside from his cancer. Andre's case is not unique. It represents the classic indifference towards suffering that is created by policies within the prison system. Abdul Ula was a 27-year-old prisoner suffering from renal failure and life-threatening diabetes. His advanced state of malnutrition was so severe that he represented a skeleton, weighing approximately 90 pounds. His medical issues placed him at the infirmary three times a day for dialysis. After a disagreement with medical staff around him as accessing timely care, CSC staff, instead of acknowledging his medical needs as pressing, took the disagreement personally. He was placed in solitary confinement. He was treated as a prisoner before he was treated as a person. Abdul was later found in a diabetic coma. He died after failed resuscitation attempts by prison staff. The severity of his medical issues should have prevented him from ever being placed in solitary confinement. Abdul should have been receiving adequate care. Instead, he too died alone. He wasn't even 30. Tasha a transgender woman serving a life sentence had complained of severe respiratory pain for weeks. She was continuously refused access to adequate care. Had she been outside of the prison, any number of resources would have been available to her, including the ability to seek a second medical opinion and gain access to the correct course of treatment. Her health concerns were not taken seriously until it was too late. Tasha died alone in her cell after more than 30 years in prison. After such an extended sentence, she had little connection to an outside community. All prisoners are required to keep $80 in their savings account to pay for death-related costs, especially in the instance that there should be no family or outside support to claim the body. Tasha was no different. She was buried in a body bag on prison property. 
Her grave includes no indication or marker besides a number. The brutal anonymity of Tasha's death is undeniable, but is not an isolated incident. Deaths in prison are not only at the hands of correctional staff. The prison industrial complex implicates us all, those in prison and those on the outside. No matter how distant the prisoners in the prison system may feel, our existence in the society relying on prisons holds us all accountable. This next clip is a speech from people organizing with the Prisoners' Correspondence Project. Euh, salut, donc on est ici euh, de la part du projet de correspondance pour prisonniers. Um, so we're here from the Prisoner Correspondence Project, which is a uh, project that works with people incarcerated throughout North America uh, through a pen pal project. We send resources, a newsletter, and do advocacy as well. Um, so we're mainly here because our members have not been consulted our members are not present in this uh, discussion around making prisons more humane. In fact, I wonder how many people at this convention have been formerly incarcerated and whether any of their opinions have been consulted in this so-called uh, discussion around making conditions humane. Um, today we wanted to talk about one of, as we stand outside of this conference um, that's discussing best practices and best technologies and how to make prisons humane, we wanted to talk about one of the big policy changes in the last year at CSC, um, which was the policy around transgender prisoners. Um, and this policy has now become the face and the symbol of the more humane prison, the more progressive prison, the more large and small L liberal prison. Um, and it's a campaign that we were working on to try to expand what some of the reforms were. And now um, trans women can be held in women's prisons if there aren't overriding security concerns. Um, but I think this is a change that just exposes the larger lies around the prison system. It's a change that leaves hundreds of people still in solitary confinement. Um, it's a change that leaves thousands of prisoners still making $6.90 a day uh, for a day's work. And it's a change that leaves thousands upon thousands of people still in cages. Um, so we're here today to say, prison abolition now, queer liberation now, open the cages. Yeah. I just want to say that the concessions or the gains that have been made are not made in these conferences. They're made by the hard battles that are fought every day on the inside um, against all fucking odds, you know? Like, against these people that are trying to help them. And if, you know, I was looking at the conference schedule and they have people coming from all over the world and it seems pretty incredible and astounding to me that with people coming from all over the world, they can't come up with anything other than increasing caging and the prisons that they're building are the excuses that they will be more humane but if it means increasing the amount of people incarcerated increasing migrant detention centers then that's no fucking solution at all so uh you know fuck that <laughs>
We're currently playing clips from a demonstration against all prisons that happened on Sunday, October 21st, outside of the International Corrections and Prisons Association Conference in Montreal, which was being hosted by Correctional Services Canada. The next clip is from the Projet Accompagnement Solidarité Colombie, and it's all in French. Uh. Pour euh, le projet Accompagnement Solidarité Colombie, euh, la tenue du 20e euh, congrès de l'ICPA est une autre manière de redorer l'image d'un système oppressif par l'incarcération. Euh, quand on regarde les populations incarcérées au Canada, on ne peut pas faire abstraction euh, de la relation entre les oppressions euh, basée sur un modèle capitaliste, euh, hétéro, euh, patriarcal, raciste et... Euh, en fait, euh, colonialiste, pardon, je cherchais le mot. <rire> euh, pourquoi est-ce que pour un même acte, euh, les femmes vont recevoir une peine plus lourde que les hommes? Pourquoi est-ce que euh, les proportions autochtones euh, en prison sont surreprésentatives des populations autochtones ou soi-disant Canada? Euh, pourquoi est-ce qu'il y a des, des classes sociales qui sont plus criminalisées que d'autres? Euh, les prisons? Peu importe euh, les technologies qu'ils vont utiliser, qui permettraient de les humaniser, euh, reflètent réellement un contrôle exercé pour, pour euh, établir, maintenir l'ordre établi. Euh, Puis si euh, le thème du congrès qui va se dérouler, de se dérouler pendant les six prochains jours, c'est euh, au-delà des prisons, la, la voie à suivre. Euh, on tient à souligner l'ironie derrière le fait d'essayer de, d'améliorer les conditions des personnes qui sont privées justement euh, de leur liberté par un système répressif. Euh, euh, J'aimerais euh, euh, finir avec l'extrait d'une lettre euh, d'un militant colombien. Euh, Julian Gill, présentement euh, incarcéré euh, à Bogota depuis le 6 juin 2018. Je veux aussi dire que la prison n'est qu'une pièce de plus de la corruption structurelle du pays, en parlant de la Colombie. En tant que projet de resocialisation des contrevenants, il a échoué et ne révèle que beaucoup plus de ce que sous-tend la loi. C'est une, pun une punition pour les pauvres les plus marginalisés de la société. C'est une autre forme de stigmatisation et de ségrégation de la pauvreté. Nous devons continuer à travailler dans l'unité des peuples, dans la construction du pouvoir et de l'autonomie de nos territoires. Nous ne pouvons pas faiblir dans la recherche de vraies conditions pour une vie digne et nous ne devons jamais abandonner nos rêves de pays et d'humanité. This final clip from the demonstration against prisons that happened outside of the International Correction and Prisons Association Conference was a, a final closing speech. Comme j'ai dit tout à l'heure, c'est un mal qui fait de la violence à plein de personnes, à plein de communautés, à plein de familles. Il inclut le monde qui ne sont pas en dedans, mais qui sont proches du monde qui sont en dedans. C'est important qu'on soit ici. C'est important qu'on dise qu'on est contre toutes les prisons, qu'on rejette l'illusion de leur réforme. Euh, donc, merci. So everyone, th thanks for coming out. 
Uh, as I said before, prisons are a global evil. They inflict violence against the people who are locked up in them, and they inflict violence on the communities, the families, and the scenes that those people come from. Uh, you know, it's important that we're here today to say that we're against all prisons, and we reject the, the illusion of their reforms for what they are. So with that said, we're going to wrap it up for today. Thanks for coming. And uh, we hope that uh, the delegates at this conference get food poisoning or something like that. Quit your job. 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 What's that? That was a closing speech from a rally and demonstration that happened in Montreal on October 21st. It was a demonstration against all prisons that took place outside of the International Corrections and Prisons Association Conference. According to demonstration organizers, around 40 people showed up to the rally, with hundreds of cops mobilized in the neighborhood. The rally included the speeches we have just played, an awesome playlist, and some marching around the street and chanting against prisons. At the very end... Some participants moved to get closer to the hotel doors where the conference was being held, but were blocked by the cops and instead moved to the intersection at De La Gauchetterie et Peel and dispersed soon after. Next, we have an interview with Helen from the Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar. Certain Days is a joint fundraising and educational project between outside organizers in Montreal, Hamilton, New York, and Baltimore, in partnership with three political prisoners, David Gilbert, Robert Seth Hayes, and Herman Bell. Hello there, everyone. This is Eugene, coordinator for Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, Montreal, Quebec. Today we have a special guest with us. Helen is from the Certain Days Calendar Project. So let's get right to it. Helen, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what Certain Days Calendar Project is all about? Sure, yeah. Um, so a bit about myself. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the outside members of the Calendar Collective. So I, I live here in, in Montreal on unceded Kanyangahaga territory. Um, and uh, a couple of, well, more than a couple, several of us way back in, uh, I guess it would have been 2001. At that point, we were already visiting some prisoners in New York State, some political prisoners. Uh, Herman Bell, Robert Seth Hayes, and uh, David Gilbert who were all involved in various uh, struggles back in the 1960s, 70s, through into the 80s, and were serving time in prison as a result of uh, some other political work. And so we were visiting them. We were learning lots just from them as, as elders, as people who had been doing social justice work longer than us, and also trying to provide them with support, you know, just visiting, writing, um, supporting parole campaigns, stuff like that. But we didn't have a shared project, something that we were doing together. So at that point, uh, the idea came up of let's produce this calendar, something concrete uh, you can put up on your walls. We can commemorate dates of important uh, important anniversaries that have happened, you know, of important things that happened in history. 
um, we can raise some funds for social justice projects, our own and others, and we can uh, make the links between prison as an issue and other social justice projects, and we can, uh, you know, brighten people's day by putting some inspiring art up on people's walls. So that's how it got started. Uh, back in 2002 was the first calendar. Now we've just put out the 2019 calendar and uh, continue to raise funds for various various groups and uh, put out an issue each year with a different social justice theme. Yeah, I just I have the 2019 calendar and it's great. But you, can you tell us how the project has progressed and changed over the years? Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like anything else is developed. There's a learning curve. When we started out, it was, uh, I would say, you know, we were proud to put it out, but I th- would say it's gotten prettier over the years. The artwork has gotten stronger as we've reached out to more visual artists. And also as we've just gotten better at producing a calendar. Like now, how would I put this? I guess at the beginning, it was almost more like a magazine you would hang on your wall. <laughs> There'd be like a bunch of writing on every calendar page and at a certain point we caught on to the fact that like people want to read people want to learn but they also just want something they can look at and be inspired so i i feel like visually it's gotten a lot stronger over the years um at some point somebody got involved in the collective who was a designer by trade and she really uh pushed us to to make it look nicer and be stronger as a project so that's one thing that's changed. Another thing that's changed is that we've gotten, I think, stronger about having a theme each year. So this year's theme, well, next year's theme, I should say, uh, the 2019 calendar, the theme is health slash care. So health and care and health care all brought together in one theme. And uh, that's something that we've been doing since 2006 six or 2007 2006 was the first year that the calendar had a theme so that just kind of helps tie it together all the articles all the artwork touch in some way on this one topic and tie that into the topic of prison and political prisoners so so this year it's health and it just kind of makes it a bit more a bit more cohesive i would say you actually answered one of my uh, questions there. That was my next question was about the theme uh, of uh, this year. You highlighted themes around racial justice. Why is that important to do in the context of prisoners' justice? Well, um, you know, the one thing about having a theme is like all themes kind of relate to each other. And I would see racial justice, racism, racialization is a theme that's central, I would say, to everything. And I think, you know, as me personally, but also as a collective, um, we feel that oppression, including racism, is 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 central to everything. When you look at prisons, you look at what prisons are for, and one thing that prisons are for, I would say, from the point of view of the states, is to control the population, to keep people controlled, divided, brought down, and that ties into racism, it ties into colonialism. So whatever the theme is in a given year, you'll find us talking about racism in the calendar um, because you can't really talk about prison without talking about racism. Yeah, we have that problem up here in Canada too, a lot of that, especially with the Aboriginal uh, population being so overrepresented in uh, prisons, you know, so that is a good one to bring up. Okay, uh, one thing I'd like to know, who funds your project and how do you guys stay afloat in terms of funding? Do you get donations or how do you do it? Well, the project itself is a fundraiser, so we try and like break even and then above and beyond that raise funds. So every year, put out the calendar, sell the calendar, 
And then we do two things with the money. We put some of it aside to produce the next year's calendar. And then the rest of the money we donate to groups. There's a couple of groups that we donate to on an ongoing basis. One of them is Adamir, which is a prisoner organization in Palestine. Um, that's, again, tying into the racism. We feel that international solidarity is important, and Palestine in particular is one one place, one, one site of struggle against global racism that uh, the political prisoners involved in our project over the years have always highlighted as an important one. So we give to Adamir every year. We also give to a group in New York State called RAP, which stands for Release Aging People from Prison, um, which is a group that tries to do just that through parole reform, through lobbying, through through political action of different kinds, tries to say, look, you can't just lock people up and throw away the key. There's the system called parole. We should be using it. And we should be we should be letting people age out of prison. After a certain point, people are not really uh people have changed essentially so so let them out so that's what they do and so we give to them every year and then every year we give to at least one additional group beyond adamir and rap so you know when you ask who funds us it's like we fund us but more accurately people fund us people buy the calendar the money continues to produce the calendar and then goes to the projects I just mentioned. Um, but people do also sometimes give us donations, and we're, we're very pleased when that happens. Uh, sometimes people just call us up and say, hey, we like your work. How can I contribute? And one of the ways is by giving us money. So if anyone's listening to this and they want to give us money, all right, you can reach us uh, by the contact info. I guess I'll, I'll give the contact info at the end of the interview. Yeah, I hope they all give deep too because uh, this is a very, very worthy project. You know, you're talking about internationally, how, you know, prisons are all over the world. Basically, when you come down to it, it's all the same misery, so we have to fight that. Now, that brings me up to the Americans, so we do a lot of American stuff. Uh, how have you found the treatment of political prisoners under the Trump administration? Has it changed? And uh, not that not that it was that much better under the Democrats, but... Is there any difference? Uh, do you tie changing to the worst? I mean, that's a tough question to answer in the short term, because like you said, you don't want to glorify the Democrats, right? So at the same time, Trump and the Trump administration has been horrible on, on every social justice front, and political prisoners are, are no different. Uh, the thing with the way the prison system is organized in the States is a bit different than it is in Canada insofar as in the states, you have your federal prisoners and then you have state prisoners. It's not divided in terms of length of sentence like it is in Canada. So some of the political prisoners are federal prisoners, and certainly they seem to be feeling the heat more from what I understand uh, with the Trump administration. But on a state level, because there's been some really great work over recent years, there's actually been some some victories that have happened since the Trump administration have come in in terms of parole reform in certain states that have meant that, uh, that some political prisoners have gotten out. Um, as far as the calendar goes, personally, I mentioned the three founding prisoner members, uh, Seth Hayes and Herman Bell, both got parole this year after years and years of trying. You know, they were both serving 25 years to life sentences and uh, had been up to the parole board multiple, multiple times up before this year. And then this year finally got out. And it's not just coincidence, it's because of 
the work of groups like RAP that have really been trying to to make a change at the parole board level. Certainly for the federal prisoners, you know, you feel the effects of the Trump administration, that that's something that we worry about constantly for sure. Yeah, we'll see how that turns out. Let's just hope he just wins his second election because that's where you really take t- years to go through and you feel the effects down the road. So let's hope he's not there too much longer and uh, let's hope that things keep going better for everybody down there. How do you see the future of the calendar project now? Like, I think we talked about that a bit. Can you say a little bit more about that? Or basically, is there anything else that you would like to tell us, you know, tell our listening audience about what's going on and anything you want to add? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one, I mean, to, to answer your question concretely about the future, we're now, we have a problem that's a very good problem to have, which is that this time last year, we had a an inside collective of, of three political prisoners. Now we're down to one. So as a project, we have an issue, but it's a, a great problem, like I said, because, you know, Herman and, and Seth are both on parole, which means they can't participate in the project as part of the parole conditions. So they're not. But so we are trying to figure out what what comes next certainly we're going to continue because there's definitely still work to be done but what that looks like in terms of taking direction from prisoners as the outside collective that's something uh that is important that there be political prisoners involved so we're trying to figure out who we get involved how they get involved because uh calendar originally came out of a relationship that already existed. We already all knew each other. So now that's not the case. We'd be looking to bring new people on and then we'd have to build those relationships. So that's that's one aspect of the future. Uh, like we were just talking about a minute ago with Trump, the political landscape continues to change and it's bigger than Trump. Like you said, it makes a difference whether he gets a second term, but whether he does or not, the landscape's changed. All the changes that have come in under Trump whoever gets elected next, they're probably not going to just reverse them all, right? So any any negative changes that have come through, that's the new reality. And same in Canada, it ripples to here. We just got a new government in Quebec that's, that's looking pretty scary as well. So, you know, we're up against whatever changes come out of that. And so we're just going to have to continue to respond, continue to analyze, continue to think as a movement, Uh, to try and end prisons and you know the calendar is going to try and contribute to that every year by trying to to come up with a theme that's relevant to the political times yeah well I hope that you're right on on this because we've you know you say it's pretty scary government we have in in Quebec right now well Ontario elected a right wing Alberta will soon be having uh, conservatives back in power there and you know their law and order thing is just to get votes it's not based on any fact or anything good so that's my opinion. Maybe I shouldn't throw it in in this interview, but I can't help myself. <laughs> okay, uh, so would you like to say a little bit where people can donate and help you with this? Absolutely, and and hopefully it's not just them helping us. Hopefully it's us helping them too, because I guess uh, this I should have mentioned earlier. So the calendar is a fundraiser, but it can also be a fundraiser for other groups insofar as if you just want a calendar, you buy a calendar, 15 bucks on the outside, uh, 8 bucks including postage for prisoners. But if you're listening to this and you're part of a project or a group that wants to fundraise for yourself, you can buy a bulk rate of calendars for any number 10 or greater 
and buy them for $10 each, sell them for 15 so then you're fundraising for your own group. And we really love it when people do that, partially because it brings us money, but also because then it ties our projects together. So if you're fundraising for, I don't know, uh, a group that's, uh, you know, trying to stop fracking in your community or a group that's trying to, like, support the families of missing and murdered Indigenous women or whatever it might be, we feel like all these issues tie together. If we can make that connection real by fundraising together, then great. So I'll give our website where people can get information. It's certaindays.org. So certaindays is all one word, no hyphens or underscores or spaces, certaindays.org. For anyone who has access to the internet, you can order straight off there. There's also a list of stores and organizations around the Montreal area where you can pick up calendars that's on the website. But for folks that don't have access to the internet, I'll just mention a few of them. There's Lynn Soumise Anarchist Bookstore. There's the Concordia Co-op Bookstore, Le Frigo Vert, also over at Concordia University. We hope to soon have them in the Urge Leon uh, feminist bookstore, although they're, they're not dropped off there quite yet, but keep checking back and they'll be there soon. And then uh, often at events to do with, with prisoner justice, so hopefully we, we have a table set up between now and the end of the year at most of those events, so look for us there. And uh, for anyone listening who is not near anywhere you can order and it's not near the internet, I'll give our mailing address as well. You can send a check uh, made out to Cuperg Concordia because they are our, our fiscal sponsors, people that, that handle our banking. So that's Q-P-I-R-G Concordia, as in the university, C-O-N-C-O-R-D-I-A, Cuperg Concordia. Um, and the address, 1455 De Maisonneuve Boulevard West, and I'll spell that, D-E. M-A-I-S-O-N-N-E-U-V-E West, Montreal, Quebec, H3G as in George, 1M as in Matthew 8, H3G1M8. So people can write there and uh, send a check made out to Cooper Concordia with calendar written somewhere on the check. Like I 